Uh, for those of you who are new here, we're, we're in our series on, called Seven. We're uh, working our way through the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation chapters one through three. These, these chapters are, these letters are an amazing treasure to us from Jesus because it's Jesus speaking directly. It's red letters. You know, lots of people, lots of Christians these days think the only place in the Bible where Jesus really speaks is the Gospels. And of course, we know that not to be true. Jesus speaks through all the writers of Scripture. But they think because of the red letters, they think Jesus only speaks in the Gospels. Well, in the book of Revelation, Jesus speaks to the churches, and it's all red letters, chapters 2 and 3. And so these, these chapters are an absolute treasure uh, to us as a local church and to us as Christians today. This is Jesus speaking to Christians and local churches. So absolutely brilliant. So far we've looked at the letter to the church at Ephesus, and last week we looked at the letter to the church at Smyrna. Today we get to uh, church number three and a letter to the church at Pergamum. Let's pray and then we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for these words. We thank you that you preserve these for us, your words to local churches, your words to Christians. And I pray that you would speak to us through these words. Lord Jesus, I'm amazed. I'm amazed every week as we look at these letters, how applicable they are to us today. And I pray that you would help us to apply these words to our lives today. In your name we pray, amen. So the letter to the church at Pergamum, verse 12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right, okay? And so with all of these messages, I start out with a little bit of background. When you know a little bit more of the background of Pergamum, you understand a little bit more about the church and some of the things that Jesus is going to say to them in this letter. And so the, the uh, city of Pergamum, the, we've looked at three so far, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum. Those are the big three. Those are the ones that were all sort of along the coast of the province of Asia. The next four we're going to look at in the following weeks were, uh, are, are smaller cities. They're less important cities in terms of Rome and politics and that sort of thing. But Pergamum was a very big city and a powerful and a wealthy city, all right? And we looked two weeks ago, we saw how Ephesus was a city that was very hostile to Christians. Last week we saw that Smyrna was even worse. And today we're looking at Pergamum. Pergamum was every bit as bad as Smyrna, okay? Um, Pergamum, I, I, I tried to figure out as I was looking at it this week and studying and reading stuff up on it, um, I was trying to figure out a word, how, how to describe it, because Pergamum was a very unique place. Uh, Pergamum for a Christian, and the only word I could really come up with was kind of spooky. It would have been a very spooky place to live as a Christian because there was so much occultic uh, uh, activity and demonic activity in that city. The, the city of Pergamum literally was a center of occultic, demonic, like very overtly uh, satanic type activity all over the city. It was uh, the main part of the city was uh, built up on a, uh, and I'm going to show you a picture in just a few minutes, not, not quite yet, but the main part of the city was built up on a small mountain about a thousand feet up, so you could see the main part, of, you could see Pergamum for miles and miles around. And up on that little mountain there, the top of that thousand foot tall mountain, they had a whole bunch of temples. And, and I said before, this city was like ground zero, occult, you know, power and demonic activity in, in the province and in the, in the Roman Empire. At the top, they had a huge temple to the emperor for emperor worship. And remember last week, we looked at Smyrna. Smyrna was, was big on emperor worship too. These two cities were very close to each other. This whole area, really big on emperor worship. So at the, big of, at the top of this 
this little mountain, you did this huge temple to the emperor where there was emperor, emperor worship, but then they had all kinds of other stuff going on up there. They had a temple right there beside the uh, temple to the emperor. They had a temple to the Greek god uh, Dionysus. I'm not sure, quite sure how you say it, but this was essentially the god of wine. And at this temple, it was basically, uh, it, was a, it was a place for de- just debauched orgies and disgusting revelry and drunkenness and sexual immorality. And this is the kind of stuff that went up on there all the time, packed out with people. And then they also had up there, and we're going to look at a picture of this in just a moment, but they also had at the top of this mountain, they had this huge, huge altar, world famous altar to the Greek god Zeus, an altar to the, to the god Zeus, who was in, in sort of the Greek pantheon, Zeus was sort of kind of the main god, or of all the many Greek gods, Zeus was kind of the big one. And they had this huge, just a massive, massive altar to Zeus that you could see for many, many, many miles around. And then at the base of the mountain, again, just to give you, you just have to get a feel, this city was, was incredibly pagan. Uh, imagine being a Christian living in this city. At the base of the mountain, they had this huge, uh, kind of healing center, which sounds good, a healing center, that sounds great. We, we're, you know, we have a, what we call a healing center over there, we pray for people. This was a demonic healing center, it was called the Asclepius, and um, it named after the Greek god Asclepius, who by the way, he, the symbol for Asclepius was this guy holding a staff with snakes, uh, in, you know, uh, swirling around, entwined, crawling around it, um, which is where we get our medical symbol today from. You know, those medical bracelets and different medical things. You'll see this staff with some wings and snakes around it. That's from the Greek god Asclepius. And they had this huge healing center called Asclepius. And people would come from all over the Roman Empire. People would come. It was a famous one. They would come from all over the place to get healed at this place. And you would come there. And the first thing the priests would do is they would examine you to see if you were dying. If you were dying, you weren't allowed in. Okay. Uh, they didn't want you ruining their reputation as a healing center. I'm, I'm serious. That's kind of funny. But um, so if you were actually mostly healthy, they would let you in so you could be healed. And um, so you would go in there, and then they had all these snakes crawling around inside. I told you it was quite demonic. And then they would, uh, a lot of experts think they would put you to sleep with drugs, but however it was, they would find you a place to sleep. You would fall asleep. These snakes would hopefully, some of them would crawl over you, and then you were supposed to get a dream from this Greek god, Asclepius, who would tell you how to cure your illness, okay? So you can just see this, this thing was demonic. And this is how this whole city was, okay? I, I mean, that's why I said spooky. I mean, just, just really, really, like we're not talking about against God in a secular way. We're talking this city was overtly pagan, occultic, and demonic. Like imagine just living on a street and just down the street, you have something like the Asclepius and hundreds and hundreds of people are coming here and there's snakes there and they're getting demonic dreams and all this kind of stuff. This is the kind of city that Pergamum was, okay? And then you're going to see, Jesus is going to say something really astonishing. Just to show you how bad it was, I want to show you what he says here in, in verse 13. So we already read into the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. So Jesus introduces himself at the sharp, as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. We'll look at that in, in just a little bit later. Verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Okay? Now, that's, that's something. When, when, when Jesus says, I mean, you know, every town has something they're known for, right? You know, you go to Kleefeld, you know, the land flowing with milk and honey. You know how we all have these signs? Uh, I don't even know what Steinbeck says now that I think of it. But, you know, welcome to wherever. You know, welcome to Winnipeg. Welcome to Landmark, the little thing. Okay, think of it. This, this town, Jesus says, this is the place where Satan's throne is, okay? Of all the places you want to live in the world, it's not where Satan's throne is, all right? This is a hugely powerful 
you know, in, in evil terms, a demonic center of, you know, demonic principalities and powers. And Jesus says, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. He says it again, okay? So Pergamum was such a center for occult demonic activity. Jesus says, Satan's throne is actually here, there at, at, at Pergamum. This is a center of demonic activity. Imagine being a Christian uh, in, a, in a place like that. And uh, now scholars have, have, you know, kind of debated a little bit was Jesus referring to something specific, you know, Satan's throne, okay? Aside from the fact that obviously this was a center of demonic power and occult activity, was there something specific that, you know, Jesus was referring to that that thing was actually Satan's throne? And there's a few different ideas, but one of the things many scholars believe is that Satan's throne actually specifically referred to that famous, huge, famous, world-famous altar to Zeus, that was at the top of the mountain there at Pergamum. And I'm going to show you just a model of it. I'll just, uh, I got a couple pictures here uh, today, uh, a little bit of show and tell. This is a model, okay? This isn't the actual thing. This thing would have been huge. This is what the altar of Zeus looked like, okay? And normally when you think of an altar, you think of some, you know, when I, at least when I do, some of you might be smarter than me, you might know more than me, but normally when I think of an altar, I think of something, you know, about yay high and kind of, you know, big enough to put a cow on. You dump a cow on there, you, you sacrifice it, okay? That, very basic, Okay? This was an altar. This thing was about 11,000 square feet. Okay, it was huge. It was like a big building. Okay, altar. Huge, huge, huge altar. Now, I'm going to show you. If you can go to the next picture there, Darlene. This is a picture because there's a lot of well-preserved ruins there. We have a pretty good idea what Pergamum would have looked like 2,000 years ago. This is a pretty good picture of what Pergamum probably looked like. Okay? Now, I've got circled there in the red with the arrow. That is what the, the altar to Zeus would have looked like from a distance, okay? And you would have seen this thing from miles around because it's all up on this mountain that's a thousand feet high. You've got this thing. Now, I want you to notice that the altar itself actually looks like a humongous throne. That's what thrones looked like back then, okay? That's like kings and emperors would sit on thrones just like that and judge and make laws and all that sort of thing. You'll notice that the, the altar to Zeus, this world-famous altar to one of the, you know, kind of the chief god of the Greek gods, uh, it actually looks like a humongous throne that some kind of massive giant would, would sit on. And many scholars actually believe that this altar to Zeus is specifically, Jesus is saying, and, and they would do, they had a, in that altar, they had this hollowed out uh, bronze bull, and they would, even, they would do human sacrifice up there and all kinds of really crazy satanic stuff. And, and so many people think that, this, or scholars think that this altar to Zeus is what Jesus was specifically referring to as Satan literally has his throne there at Pergamum. Now, we could move on in the message right there, but I have to, I have to share with you because this is some freaky history. Uh, you got to know a little bit more. You want some, is, does anybody here want to know some freaky history about the, altar, about the throne of Satan? Okay, I'll, I'll show you. Some of you don't. Boring. <laughs> Go have a coffee break, okay? I'm going to take five minutes. So I'll give you a little history. Pergamum goes into ruins, okay? Not long, not long after Jesus, a couple hundred years after Jesus, war, there's different wars and stuff. Pergamum goes into ruins, and this whole mountaintop gets uh, basically abandoned. It's all just old ruins, okay, for basically 1,500 to 2,000 years, somewhere in there. Mid-1800s, okay, Pergamum is now gone. There's a modern-day city of, uh, it's a Turkish city, Bergama is around there now, but Pergamum long, long dead. Uh, Mid-1800s, a German engineer named Carl Heumann 
uh, travels to Pergamum. He goes up on this mountain, and he's blown away by all the archaeological finds there. And he, he gets permission, and he, he starts really working at this thing, and he's, he's studying the, the, uh, the old ruins and stuff. And he finds, he actually finds mostly intact, he finds this altar of Zeus, okay? He finds it, and then now where would you get, even get an idea like this? He gets this idea into his head that he's going to take this thing apart piece by piece with all of its original pieces, the actual altar of Zeus. He's going to take this thing apart piece by piece. He's going to ship it home to Germany, and he's going to rebuild it in Germany, okay? I mean, where would you even get an idea like that? So he gets this idea. He gets permission from the Turkish government, and he actually begins to take apart the actual, not a model of it. He begins to take apart the actual altar of Zeus, what many scholars say believe is what Jesus was referring to as the throne of Satan. He takes it apart piece by piece. He ships it back to Berlin, Germany, okay? And he begins to rebuild it. Now, a bunch of things happen. He ends up dying. World War I happens. The Great Depression happens. A whole bunch of things happen. And this thing doesn't get rebuilt in his lifetime, okay? Um, but, ama- but, you know, ama- to me, amazing, not in a good way, but just in terms of freaky, you know, kind of historical and things that happen, the German government takes over on this thing and rebuilds it exactly in 1930 when the Nazis uh, come to power. And I'm going to show you. Now, this gets a little more. Just a second. I'm going to show you. It's still in the Berlin Museum today. You can go see it. It's the actual uh, uh, altar of Zeus. You, it's one of the most famous uh, museum pieces there in Berlin. You can go there today and walk on it. And it's the actual thing itself, okay? So this thing, okay, so here this thing lies in ruins for 1,800 years. This German guy just happens to find it. He takes it apart. He gets this crazy idea. He rebuilds it in Berlin, and it gets rebuilt exactly as the Nazis come to power. Okay, not only that, Hitler, any of you knows anything about history, uh, Adolf Hitler and the Nazis, they were huge into occult, very occultic uh, stuff there, okay? And demonic participation, cultic rites, all that kind of thing. Uh, Hitler was very, he was enamored. He loved this altar. And he actually had his chief... um, uh, uh, Nazi architect, Albert Speer, uh, rebuild one of the most famous Nazi buildings ever, uh, one of the most important for the war, one of the most f- important Nazi buildings, the Nuremberg Rally Grounds. He had his chief architect, Albert Speer, build those rally grounds based on the altar of Zeus. Okay, and there, there's a picture of it. Okay, now this is, this is where Hitler had, anytime you see kind of those old black and white footage of, you know, Hitler giving these crazy speeches and, and, you know, thousands of people marching and giving salutes. Most of those pictures you're seeing are from this rally grounds here. And where, you know, sort of like the place where the bronze bull would have been type of thing, that's where, you know, they had a platform there. Hitler would give his, his, his speeches from there. And basically all the Nazi pro- propaganda, this was kind of the heartbeat. The Nuremberg rally grounds were the heartbeat of the Nazi par- party. Uh, from before World War II, right through World War II. This is where they gathered everybody together to whip them up into hate. This is where Hitler communicated his, his demonic plans. All of this happened from this Nuremberg rally grounds, which was built as a model, okay? Right after this altar gets rebuilt in Berlin, Germany, we see the, the Nazis rise to power. Then Hitler rebuilds as the heartbeat of his Nazi party and all of his communication. He actually builds this building based on that altar. And, and uh, you know, this, this to me, I, I just thought... I. You think of Ephesians chapter 6, Paul said this, that our greatest struggle is against powerful demonic forces of darkness in the heavenly realms. He says this, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers 
against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Basically, what Paul's saying there is, we always tend to think that our fight is against human beings. But Paul says, actually, if you look behind the scenes, there's something much bigger at work. Our, our biggest fight is not against human beings in the flesh. Our biggest fight is against these monstrously powerful, dark forces of evil who are moving in the background behind their little puppets, the human beings that we think are the problem. It's actually these principalities in the realms of darkness. And you look at the, and, and, and this is not just the Nazi party. This is all the evil in the world. Paul says, our biggest fight is not against people. It's against these evil and wicked rulers and authorities. But I mean, you just see such an example, an explosion of their power during the, the 15 years of the Nazis, what they managed to accomplish. I mean, Adolf Hitler came literally out of nowhere. He wasn't even born in Germany. He was born in Austria. The German people, all the educated German people, thought he was a, a bit of a dunce. They thought he was crazy. They thought he was stupid. Nobody took him seriously. And in, and in just a couple of years, he sweeps into power. Not only does he sweep into power, this whole country turns around from an absolute economic disaster in the, in the 1920s to become a superpower that takes on the world. This is all within 15 years and wipes out 6 million Jews, almost the entire Jewish race on the European continent. That is demonic power. That is evil forces of darkness at work. And to me, I just, I don't see how that's a, that's a coincidence. You know what I mean? You see this, this, this throne, this altar that Jesus says, the throne of Satan in Pergamum, and here we see it, it just happens to get taken apart out of ruins and rebuilt in this place right during this thing that happens and Hitler rebuilds it to me. That's, that's, that's too much to be coincidence. And of course, uh, you know, I'm not saying that Satan's throne is in Berlin today in that museum, not at all. You know, something got broken there, World War II, and the Nazis were defeated. And, you know, I mean, for hundreds and hundreds of years, that altar was in ruins there at Pergamum. Satan's throne wasn't in ruins. I mean, he's strategic. He moves it around. I have no idea where his throne is today. But certainly, uh, you just get a picture, okay? That's not coincidence when you see things like that happen, and you see these explosions of demonic evil power in the world. That's not a coincidence, you know, some of these things happening behind the scenes. And it gives you a little picture of the kind of, you know, occultic power and demonic presence that were in this ancient city of Pergamum 2,000 years ago, and there's Christians living there, right? And so we go back to, to Revelation chapter 2 and verse 13. Jesus says to them, I know where you dwell. I see it. You know, it's amazing. You, we, you know, Christians, we, we sometimes get scared. On the one hand, you look at the devil's power. It's huge. And, and by the way, when you think of that Ephesians 6 and the fact that our struggle is not against human beings primarily, but it's against these these demo powerful demonic forces in the realm. These, there's, they actually exist, not just little demons, but these massive powers of, you know, powerful forces of spiritual darkness. They actually exist. Now you realize a little bit why here at Southland we're constantly pushing hearing God in prayer. Because what are human programs? You know, we're going to just think up in our mind as churches. We're going to think up some human programs, and that's how we're going to advance the kingdom of God. You can't defeat powerful rulers and principalities in the dark realms by little human programs. This is one of the reasons why as a church, we have got to become a church of a supernatural. What I mean is not that we act weird, okay? We're very much in the natural. God loves the natural world and working hard and all that stuff that comes with just being physical and living on this earth. But we have got to become a church that prays and moves in the spirit realm as well. If we're not a praying church, there's no winning this thing, okay? But you know, sometimes you can get just focused. You see this, this thing, Paul says, open your eyes. There's these principalities, these powerful forces of darkness, 
Um, but the amazing thing is, so you open your eyes and you say, oh, these things are awful, they're terrible, they're big. But at the same time, we also get, you know, we look a little bit past them yet and we see Jesus and we, re- we realize Jesus isn't scared of any of them either. Okay, Psalm 23, Jesus says, you know, I sit, David says, he sets a table in the presence of my enemies. In other words, Jesus sets a picnic. He looks at your biggest enemy and he says, oh, look at that, eh? Let's have a picnic right here. And these Christians are living right in the shadow of the, of the throne of Satan itself, in the center of occultic activity. And Jesus says to them, I know where you dwell. He doesn't tell them to run and hide. He just says, I know where you dwell. I, I see it. I see you're in a bad place. It's a tough place. But I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, right? Yet you hold fast my name. Jesus commends them here. This is a tough place to be a Christian. This is a dark place to be a Christian. I mean, you are having the table set for you in the presence of your enemies, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. And, I mean, uh, Antipas, this is the only time in the seven letters that Jesus actually calls someone out specifically by name, okay? And we don't know any, you know, pretty much anything else about him. There's some church traditions, but they, they can't be corroborated necessarily with anything. Witnesses, so it could have happened, but it might not be, but... There's some church traditions that he was actually human sacrificed. He was sacrificed on the altar of Zeus in, he was slowly roasted alive in that bronze bull. We can't be sure of that, but we just don't know much about him for sure. But all we know is he, he was probably a church leader. And in this, in this center of satanic, this, this place of occultic power, he was sacrificed somehow. He was killed for his faith in Jesus. And imagine how traumatic that would be for us as a church. Imagine, you know, the police come and they say to Pastor Ray, you know, we're going to, we're going to whatever, roast you alive in a hollow bronze bull. And whoa, okay, that's, and then they say, and you guys better stop being Christians too. That would be traumatic, right? That'd be scary. And that's what happened to this church. And, but even though they saw their leader killed, probably in a horrible way, and they're under this intense pressure. Jesus commends them. He says, I see where you dwell, and you held fast my name, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. All right? And so Jesus is commending them there. And you know, again, as I read these, these passages every week, and as I'm going through these seven letters to the churches, I'm constantly reminded, something reminded, something that we too easily do, and I'm going to keep doing this every week, is we read these verses and we don't internalize them. Jesus did not give us these verses as entertainment. Jesus did not give us these verses just to give us a little history lesson so we could hear about some other church that once lived. Well, as good as that is, I mean, it's wonderful to learn about history too. It's not bad to learn about history just for the sake of history. But Jesus didn't preserve these words for us just so we could know about another church. He gave us these words so that we would internalize them and always take them, not just, oh, that's neat what Pergamum did. He wanted us to take these words and turn them on ourselves by the power of the Holy Spirit and say, and what about us? We, we, we don't read these verses and go, oh, that's neat. Pergamum stayed faithful in the tough times. No, no. We read that, we go, wow. And now we take and we turn them on ourselves. That's what Jesus wants us to do. This is not for entertainment. This is for us. How about us here at Southland? How about us Christians here in Steinbach? Will we hold fast even when it's tough? And you know, Jesus promises as the days get closer and closer to his return, he says that all nations will hate us, all of them. That all nations will hate you if you, if you love me and are following me. So it, it, that's a guarantee. 
If you're going to actually love Jesus, and you're actually going to follow him, the closer we get to his return, the nations are going to hate us. So things are going to get worse and worse and worse. And so the question is, will we stay faithful? It's not just, oh, neat, Pergamum stayed faithful. Will we stay faithful? Or are we just playing a game on Sundays? And we need to run through, sometimes as we meditate on these things, we need to run through uh, scenarios. I'm not talking about weird scenarios, but I'm even talking about like what happens as, you know, more and more things happen and media slander against Christianity ramps up more and more. And it will because we'll be hated by the nations. What happens when people at work start to, you know, call you names or call you a bigot because of your beliefs and things you believe in the Bible and all that sort of stuff. At that time, it's not just Pergamum. What will you do in that time? Jesus says, I'm commending you because you stayed faithful, but will we be faithful, right? That's what we always need to do with these passages. Jesus says, I commend you, all right? And again, we internalize those, we turn those on ourselves, and we say, what will happen with us? When everybody hates us, when everybody's against us, will we still stand for the truth in love? Will we still stand for Jesus? Will we still pray? Will we still gather? Will we still worship, or will we fall away? Jesus commends those who, who hold fast his name and do not deny his faith, even in the days when it gets tough, all right? Well, we keep reading, though, and we'll find that Jesus also has some things against the church of Pergamum. Pergamum. Verse 14, but I have a few things against you. Can you imagine hearing Jesus say that to you, okay? So that's serious. But uh, here's the commendation. Even when it was really tough, you didn't give up. You didn't let go. You didn't, you know, you, you, you hung tough. But I have a few things against you. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Okay? Now, isn't that, I mean, war against, these are Jesus' words. This is not Chris telling you a picture of what he thinks Jesus is like. That's why these letters are such a treasure, okay? This is Jesus uncensored. Jesus says to the church at Pergamum, if you do not clean up this immorality and compromise that is in your midst, I will come to you and I will war against, I will come to your church and I will war against those people, those compromisers, sexually immoral people in your church with the sword of my mouth, okay? Now, uh, a lot of people today, they would never think of Jesus saying something like that. The picture that we've built up of Jesus in our culture today, that Jesus would never say something like this, I'll war against you with the sword of my mouth. That Jesus would never say that. And the reason for that is because the picture we've concocted of Jesus in our culture today does not correspond to the real Jesus. Because this is what the real Jesus actually said, I will come and I'll war against you with the sword of my mouth. And the implication is, it would be better for you to deal with that stuff as a church than if I have to come. It would be better for you to deal with that compromise and sexual immorality in your church. It would be better for you to deal with that yourselves than if I have to come and deal with it. That's going to be messy. That's going to be ugly. That would be more painful for you. It would be better for you if you just did it yourselves. And there's two things I want you to notice here. First of all, I want you to notice Jesus's, yeah, the ownership he feels for the church. I want you to notice that the ownership. Notice how jo- he, Jesus feels very possessive of the church here. Like, this is my church. If you don't get rid of this stuff, I'm going to come and I'm going to clean up. Do you notice how possessive he is? And this is very different than the mindset many of us bring to the church. The mindset many of us bring to the church is that the church is just, we do with it whatever we want, really. 
I mean, as long as we talk about Jesus, we put a cross somewhere outside or inside, and we talk about, you know, we, and, and we just are loving the people and call ourselves a church, have the name church in our sign at the front, then Jesus is just basically happy. We can have all of our council meetings and make all kinds of plans and do ministry and basically do whatever we want, and Jesus is happy with us because we're a church and we talk about his name. The picture we see here in this passage is very different from that, isn't it? Jesus does not just have his church at Pergamum and say, way to go, guys, just keep running things, keep, you know, using my name. No, no, do you see how possessive he feels? This is my church. It's not your church. This is my church, and you are not allowed to bring sexual immorality and compromise into it. If you do, I'm going to come and I'm going to personally clean it out. It's mine. Do you see the possessiveness there? He owns this church. You know, Pastor Ray talks about this a lot. Sometimes I think it's hard for us to get it through our heads, and pa- passages like this help to meditate on this and to internalize it again, because he's not just talking to Pergamum. He put this in the Bible for all of us to internalize. This is what Jesus says to our church here at Southland. This is my church. It's not just our church to do with it whatever we want and bring whatever we want into it and just kind of flippantly do whatever. Jesus says, this is my church. And if you bring things into it, I don't like what we saw in some of the other churches. The threat is he'll either just plain leave or in the case of a church like Pergamum, he says, I will actually come and purge it out myself. I'll come and war against those elements myself. He's possessive. We, we do not own the church. Jesus owns the church. What does he want? And there should be an awe as we come into church, as we worship, as we approach. How do we talk about the church? How do we minister in the church? How do we worship in the church? We should actually approach our gatherings and how we think of the church with a little bit of a sense of awe. Jesus, this is actually yours. This is actually yours. And the second thing I want you to notice here is Jesus' intense zeal for holiness and purity in the church. Just a zeal. If you do not clean up this sexual immorality and compromise, I'm going to come against you and war. Those are his words, not my words. Those are his words. And war against him with the sword of my mouth. Remember at the beginning of the letter, he introduces himself as the one who has the two-edged sword. Now, in most of the letters so far as we've been looking at them, when he introduces himself, however he introduces himself is supposed to be encouragement. Now you see what he's talking about with the two-edged sword. It's actually a sword of judgment. He's not saying... You're talking to the one who has the two-edged sword just because, hey, I'm going to protect you, and certainly it has that implication as well. But he comes into it with the letter here. This is actually, I'm going to use this sword to war against sinful elements in the church if you don't deal with them. Now, I want to stop there for just a moment because I know some of you are sitting there and you're going, oh, I don't like where this message is going now. Because you, you have shame, right? You don't like, I'm going to start talking about holiness here, and Jesus wars against sexual immorality and compromise. And some of you are sitting here this morning and you have shame in your life. Things that you've done, things you did before you were married, sexual immorality you, don't, you can't even speak of, things you are so embarrassed about from when you are a kid. Some of you even have shame, things you didn't even do. It was things done to you. But you're sitting there and you're going, oh, I know where this message is going now. And, the, and, and it's in the Bible, so you know. It's not Chris making it up, it's Jesus. And you just feel, the moment we start to talk about holiness, or Jesus' zeal for holiness in the church, you just feel this weight of condemnation, you feel this weight of shame, you feel like, you feel like Jesus hates you, and you're like, oh, he just, of course, he went to war against Pergamum, he probably wants to war with me, he probably hates me. And you have this shame. And so we have this kind of this two sides. Because on the one hand, we see... Jesus is zealous for holiness, totally zealous. 
If you're going to have sexual immorality in the church, I'm going to personally deal with it. And on the other hand, you think, yeah, but isn't the church also supposed to be like, isn't the church supposed to be like a hospital? Don't we sometimes talk about it like that? Aren't there a bunch of scriptures that talk about, you know, we're supposed to be reaching out to the broken and the sinful and the wounded? Didn't Jesus reach out to, you know, the adulterers and the adulteresses and, and the tax collectors? Um, so how do we reconcile these two? Most churches today don't reconcile them. Many churches just come in this camp and they say, the church is a hospital. Who cares about immorality? We're reaching out to sinful people. Sin doesn't even really matter. It's just the grace of God. We've just got to love people, accept, accept, accept. They never deal with sin. And then you have other people, they're just legalistic. It's just, you know, the moment anybody's, you know, part way that looks sinful, because we're all sinful, but the moment anyone actually shows sinfulness, if they're looking down their noses at them, what do you, you know, And so you've got these kind of two groups of people. So how do we pull them together? Because certainly Jesus here in this passage, zealous for holiness in the church. Absolutely zealous. And yet, I could show you a bunch of other passages. We know the church is supposed to reach out to broken, wounded, sinful people. And all of us here is messed up. Nobody here is perfect. How do we bring those two things together? Who is Jesus? What is it? And the answer is you have to understand Jesus' heart towards sinners. You can have... Two people do the same act and have Jesus respond to them in totally different ways. Did you know that? You could have people do the exact same action and have Jesus respond to one with grace and love and have Jesus respond to the other with anger. Did you know that? See, because Jesus sees past our actions, he sees to the heart. And there's three, now there's probably more than this, but I've I've just simplified things down just to make it easy. But there's three kinds of sinners. I want to show you three basic types of sinners, okay? Three basic types of sinners. When you sin, or when you bring sin into the church, Jesus is looking past your actions. He's seen to the heart. And there's three kinds, basic kinds of sinners in a church and, and Christians. And the first kind is the keep it hidden sinner, all right? This is the kind of person when they sin, um, they, you, you feel a little guilty about it, but... You, you oh, quickly cover that up. You don't want anybody else to know about it. And you're, you're too proud. You don't want to deal with it. You're, you're afraid. Whatever your reasons are, you don't want to deal with it. You keep it hidden. You, you sin. You know, some of you, it was last night. There might be a guy here today. You actually just looked at pornography last night. Or maybe it was Friday. And here you are in church. That's it. You just try to push it out of your mind. You, you wish you hadn't done it. Just stop thinking about it. Oh, now he has to bring it up. Keep it hidden kind of sinner. He's a keep it hidden kind of sinner, all right? Now, let's see what the Bible talks about the keep it hidden kind of sinners. I want to read you a story, and this story will just speak for itself. Famous story, Acts chapter 5. Because it's not just the action, it's the heart behind the action and how we deal with our sin. I want to read you Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, all right? And many of you, you will, uh, you know, remember this story immediately as I begin to read it. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And so you're going, oh, great, here we go. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? In other words, it was your house. It was your property. When you sold it, you could have given it all to the church. You could have given none of it to the church. It was all yours. You didn't have to do anything with it. Okay? Why is it then that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. 
When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Okay? And great fear. Now just, okay, think, stop. This is a church, okay? We, we read these things in the Bible and we just think, well, that was totally different then. No, this is a church. The resurrection had already happened. Pentecost had already happened. This is the church, just like we're a church. Now imagine I call one of you up here and you come up here and I say, yeah, how much money did you give? You gave it all. Actually, you just lied to the Holy Spirit and a person falls down dead right in front of you. It's all here. Can you imagine that? How would you feel? How would I feel? No. <laughs> Great fear. Imagine that. They watched this happen. Whoa. Great fear came upon all who heard of it. God killed them. The devil didn't kill them. God killed this person. The young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. You think God cares about holiness in the church? Verse 7, after an interval. Now, it just, I mean, I can't, wow. After that, I would have been like, I'm going home. I got to deal with some emotional stuff happening, all right? After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in and found her dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. And that was not a bad thing. That was a good thing. The fear of God came on this place that actually the church belongs to Jesus and holiness is important there. Now, the question is, some of you are going, whoa, and that was just for a lie. Like, there should be a whole bunch of you dropping like flies right now. Just from this last week. Just from this morning's drive here. Okay? The things you said to your kids and your spouse. Okay? Poof. Off. You go, oh, there goes another one. No. It, this is God and holiness. Now you think, is lying worse than any of the other sins? No, no. They didn't die because, they, because lying is so bad Jesus couldn't forgive it. Lots of stories in the Bible where people who lied lived and were forgiven. It's not, they didn't die because the action was so bad. I'll tell you why they died. The heart behind the action no repentance. Keep it hidden sinner. So you want to know something? Because we talk a lot about grace. Everybody in the church today is talking about grace. And, and we talk about, first of all, one of the things that bothers me about it is we talk about grace as this disembodied substance rather than a person. We should be talking about Jesus. Grace isn't a thing all by itself. It's Jesus' character to be merciful to repentant people. Grace isn't a substance. Like, we talk about grace, 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 grace. We should talk about Jesus, who has a characteristic towards repentant people of graciousness. But people talk grace, 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 grace. Do you want to know something? There is no grace for people who are not repentant. Oh, somebody's going, oh, dun, 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 dun. I didn't know that. Find me one verse in the Bible. Find me one verse in the Bible where unrepentant, hardened sinners, Jesus is gracious towards them and forgives them. Never. Grace is Jesus' wonderful, loving response to people who have a repenting heart. 
It's not the action. You know what the beauty is? Some of you are sitting here today in deep shame the moment I started talking about holiness because, again, you're conjuring up these horrible things you've done in your past and you think Jesus hates you because of that action. You know who you need to be encouraged by today? King David. King David committed adultery with a woman Bathsheba and then murdered her husband, okay? Nobody here today has done anything worse than that, okay? I mean, even if you've murdered someone, you haven't done anything worse. You're just as bad, okay? And if you're a a serial killer or something, come see me after and I will report you immediately, all right? (laughs) But you might have done some really shameful bad things. You haven't done anything worse than David. Yet Jesus says he was a man after my own heart. Why? Because he had a repentant heart. You can read about his repentance. Psalm 51. Some of you here today, you should write that down. You're taking notes right now? Write down Psalm 51. Psalm 51 was David's prayer. After he was confronted with his sin, he went through this period of mourning and sorrow and repentance. He wrote Psalm 51. It's a wonderful prayer for anyone who is repenting or ashamed of sin to see David, you know, falling on his knees before Jesus and and confessing and repenting and and being forgiven. Okay? The Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul killed people because they loved Jesus. And he didn't kill them on the electric chair in some kind of humane way. There was stonings. We would call it torture today. He tortured people to death because they loved Jesus. How could someone like that be forgiven? Nobody here has done anything worse than that. Yet Jesus forgave him. He became one of the great missionaries of all time. Because when Jesus confronted him with who he was, Paul repented. See, there's all, there is no sin. A repentant person. If you have a repentant heart, you feel convicted for your sin. You feel godly sorrow for your sin. You say to Jesus, I will turn and follow you. I hate this sin. If your heart is repentant in even a weak way, Jesus says, oh, I love to forgive you for the repentant sinner. But if you are a keep it hidden sinner and you don't want to deal with your sin, or there's another kind, that's the indifferent or rebellious sinner. That's just the person who just presumes upon the kindness of God. I don't really care. I don't feel bad about my sin. God's grace, oh, thank you. He's just forgiven me. And there's no sorrow over sin. There's no repenting. There's no, as you pursue Jesus, going to war. Jesus doesn't just take your sin away. He expects you to go to war with it as you pursue him. To get accountability, to bring it in the open, to confess it, to get help, to pray and fast. The indifferent sinner just says, oh, whatever, I'm just forgiven. It's no problem. There's no godly sorrow. Those people, there's not grace for that. But if you have a repenting heart, a repenting person, and you'll see this all through the Gospels. I talk about this often, but I have to keep talking about it because our, our, our Christian culture has missed this point. Jesus reached out to all kinds of sinners. That's the good news. Love it. You have not done anything too shameful for him to forgive you here this morning. Nothing. The adulterous woman in John chapter 8, the Pharisees tried to condemn her, but he saw past the action, he saw the heart. He saw she was repentant. He said, I will not condemn you. And then he said what? Go and sin no more. Repentance. Turn from your sins. John chapter 5, he goes down to the pool of Bethesda. He heals this crippled man. There's a big party erupts. They get separated. Later, Jesus finds him at the temple. and And what does he say to him? Does he say, oh, hey, have a good rest of your life. I'm blessing you. No. He says to him, you can find it in John chapter 5, stop sinning or something worse will happen to you. You ever said that to a new believer? That's Jesus. Stop sinning or something worse will happen to you. Wow. Luke 19, you know, he goes into the house of the wicked tax collector, Zacchaeus, right? 
And does Zacchaeus come out afterwards and say, woo, I'm a wicked tax collector. And as a wicked, dishonest tax collector, I can follow Jesus and be friends with Jesus because of his grace. That's not what he says. He has one coffee with Jesus. He comes out and says, I give half my money to the poor. And everybody I've ripped off, I'll pay you back four times. Let me get it right. Repentance. Jesus will happily forgive you of the worst crimes if you will repent. You will feel conviction, you will have godly sorrow, and you will say, I hate my sin. And then it doesn't mean that you're perfect. You think that adulterous woman, Jesus said, go and sin no more. Do you think she went and never sinned again in her life? Of course not. We all sin. We all mess up. Repentance doesn't mean you became perfect. Repentance means you're in this process of repenting, that in your immaturity and in your weakness, you still fall. And you might be in bondage. You might be here today, and you are in a bondage that you've been in for 15, 20 years. You're not going to necessarily get out of that in one prayer, one message. So then you feel guilty. Well, I haven't properly repented. No, no. The repenting heart, Jesus looks at you. He sees that you hate your sin. You're not casual about it. He sees you getting accountability and confessing, putting things in your life, getting rid of your computer, whatever it is that draws you into sin, get going, you know, getting rid of friends that draw you into that sin or that bondage. He sees you in your weakness, and he sees you fall into that sin a hundred times, two hundred times, but he sees your heart. He says that you have a repenting heart. He sees that you wish you were free. He sees you pursuing him, and in the midst of your bondage, he reaches down to you, and he says, I love you, son. I love you, daughter. Let me help you up. I forgive you. That's his heart. That's his heart if your heart is repenting. If your heart is callous, indifferent, or just keep it hidden and don't deal with it, that, it's not the same heart. It could be the same action. It will be a very different response. Jesus might say to you, I'm coming to you to war against you with the sword of my mouth. The repenting sinner, the keep it hidden sinner, the rebellious or indifferent sinner. Very different things. Jesus sees the heart. Now the question is, I want to go a little more in depth with this. Who is Balaam? Now, Jesus said up there, you have some there who hold. If you go to the next uh, slide there, uh, Darlene, that'd be great. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, all right? The teaching of Balaam. And obviously, we see that has something to do here with sexual immorality and stuff. And oh, I just want to open something up for you to one of Satan's strategies for your life and the church. Who is Balaam? Okay, many of you, if you've been a Christian for some time, you, you know it's quite a famous story in the Old Testament. Um, you, if you want to write it down, I don't have time to get into all of it, but if you want to read it this week, uh, in your devotions or whatever, Numbers chapter 22, 23, and 24, three chapters in Numbers. Numbers 22 to 24, they have the story of Balaam, okay? Balaam was a prophet in the Old Testament, not an Israelite prophet, okay? He, we don't know what country he was from, but he was living in the land of Canaan when the Israelites were in Egypt. And then God brought the Israelites across the Red Sea, rescued them out of Egypt, and he's going to give them the promised land. And so they come to the promised land, the land of Canaan, and they're camped there, millions of them, with all their animals and everything. And of course, the people who are living in the land of Canaan have heard what God did for them, and they know that they're coming now to take their land, and they're scared. And so Balaam is a prophet in this land of Canaan. He's well known. And, and, and so the king of Moab, which is one of the countries there, who, they're very afraid of the Israelites. The king of Moab is a man named Balak, and Balak comes to Balaam, okay? Balak comes to Balaam, and he says, I'm going to pay you money, I want you to come and curse these Israelites because we're, we're scared of them. You need to put a curse on them so that, you know, we can defeat them. And Balaam says, hey, you're going to pay me for that? Sweet. He goes, he goes up on a mountain. He goes to curse the Israelites and he goes to give them a real good curse. He's going to real nail them. God stops him. He says a blessing instead. And Balak is like, what was that? I didn't pay you to bless them. I paid you to, I'm paying you to curse them. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. 
Balaam goes to another spot in the mountain, looks at them. He goes to give them a real good curse. And I, uh, stops. God stops him from cursing him. He says a blessing again. Balak is starting to lose his mind now. I pay you to bless these people. You're, you're doing the exact opposite thing I want you to do. You need to curse these people. Balaam said, give me another shot. He goes to a third spot. He offers sacrifices, and he goes to give him a real good curse that's going to bring him down. He goes to curse him. God stops him. He gives another blessing. Balak is beside himself with rage. You're not getting paid. And then he probably said some other things too, which can't be repeated, and they're not in the Bible. <laughs> okay? Now, if you read Numbers 22 to 24, that's it to the story. You don't read any more. You read to Numbers 31, though, we find out Balaam was cunning with a satanic cunningness. When he saw that God wouldn't let him curse them overtly and get them from the outside, he still wanted his money. He still wanted to help Balak bring the Israelites down. So he gave him some advice. We see this referred to in, in Numbers chapter 31, okay? And then we see it referred to again in 1 Peter and here in Revelation 2. But Numbers 31 um, Balaam goes to Balak and he says, Behold these, on Balaam's advice, this is Moses talking about the advice he gave him, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord. So here's what Balaam did. And then we read about it again in Peter and we read about it in Revelation. When he saw that God wouldn't let him curse the Israelites overtly from the outside and bring them down from the outside, he said, I know, I know a plan though. We can still get them, Balak, and, and you can still pay me. He said, if you will send your prettiest Moabite women down to the Israelites and have them seduce some of the Israelite men and get them to commit sexual immorality. If you can get them to commit sexual immorality, you will open them up to also participate with you in your pagan feasts and you will get them to compromise. If you can get, sexual immorality is the key. If you can get sexual immorality in there, you'll open them up to other forms of compromise. Eventually they will leave their relationship with their God and their God, Yahweh, will get so angry with them, he will judge them. It'll be just as good as if I had cursed them. This is his plan. It was a cunning plan. It worked. It's still Satan's plan today. Did you know that? He's still pulling it off. The teachers of Balaam in the Pergamum were not people who were calling themselves Balaam. They were, they were Christians. They weren't talking about Balaam because they were saying, oh, Balaam was a bad guy. They weren't using the name Balaam. That's not why they're called teachers of Balaam. They're called teachers of Balaam because they're Christians who are bringing into the church the same problem Balaam when Satan wanted to attack the people of God, the Israelites. He said, if you can't get them from the outside... You can get them from the inside if you can get sexual immorality in there. If you can get sexual immorality on the inside, you'll open them up to other forms of compromise and you will destroy the relationship with God and God will eventually have to judge them in his purity and holiness and you'll bring them down anyway. There was Christians at Pergamum. It was the exact same strategy of Satan. They were teaching grace in a distorted way that allowed people to be sexually immoral and say, oh, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. Sexual immorality is a very big deal. By the way, and I could show you a whole bunch of passages. Paul talked about sexual immorality this way. He actually separated out sexual immorality from all the other sins. All sin is bad. All sin separates you from God. But Paul separated out sexual immorality as specifically dangerous. This is what he said in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin. Okay, he separates them. They're all bad. But flee from sexual immorality in particular because every other sin a person commits is outside of the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now, we don't have time to get into all the details of this. And Stefan, Pastor Forwin's here, if you're new, he has done a lot of work on this. And at some point, maybe this year or next year, he'll, he'll do some training in this area. 
uh, researchers, because of the way God has made us, because of the way God has made us, see, there's this lie in the culture today that sex is just a, a natural body function. Just, it's just like eating. It's just like going to the bathroom. It's just like breathing. It's just something. And if you, as long as you're not hurting people, it's not bad. Unfortunately, this kind of thinking is sneaking into the church. But research over the last few years has actually showed us that sex is not a regular body function just like everything else. Sex impacts your brain. And again, we don't have time to get into all the details right now, but sex has been shown now in research to hugely impact your brain. It opens up your brain. Literally, it rewires your brain. And it opens you up to forming new attachments, new desires. It changes the way you feel and think. It opens you up to all kinds of things you weren't open to before. It makes your brain malleable to be changed. That's what sex actually does. Now, in the confines, God made it for marriage. In the confines of marriage, which is one man and one woman in a committed lifelong relationship of marriage, sex is a, can be a wonderful thing in how it rewires the brain to fuel a super glue, long life, emotional attachment with a person where literally in your brain, your brains actually begin to become as one. There's actually research that shows this. This is why sometimes people, after they've been married for many, many years, start to finish each other's sentences. Part of it has to do with what, how God has created sex. It's true. There's research on this. It actually brings oneness. There's this fuel. It does wonderful things. The moment it comes outside of the boundaries of marriage, it actually opens you up to all kinds of horror and sin and selfishness. It changes your brain to want that stuff. This is why occult rituals, satanic rituals, for thousands of years have always gone linked hand-in-hand hand with sexual immorality. And I could share with you stories. I, I talked to the man after the first service, and he talked about some of his experiences in the school system and stuff, and how satanic stuff and sexual immorality always interlinked. Why? Because Satan knows that's a key. It's in your brain. He can change you and the way you think if he can get the sexual immorality in there. And so his plan, right from the beginning, right? We see with children of Israel, we see it at Pergamum, there's still teaching of Balaam today in the church because this is still Satan's strategy. He didn't give up on it and say, oh, the sexual immorality one, that didn't work. No, no, he's had so much success with it, he's still doing it today. And the teaching of Balaam is still alive in the church today. You read Christian blogs and magazine articles and on different things that the churches are saying and stuff, and more and more over the last few years, you've seen this huge shift Many Christians are arguing now per, the, uh, premarital sex is not a big deal. Adultery and divorce and sleeping around, you know what, you weren't happy in your marriage, it's okay. Just, you know, Christians arguing sexual immorality is not sinful, it's not bad, we just need to accept it, all this sort of stuff. And Satan's laughing, that's the teaching of Balaam. If you can't take the church down from the outside, you can get them from the inside. And you can make them compromise and you can make them turn against God and you can do all kinds of things. Just send in the Moabite women to seduce them and after that you've got them. And Jesus says, I will war against those people with the sword of my mouth. You look at the statistics. I looked at some statistics again this, this week and you want to know one of the big reasons why the church in North America is so asleep. And it's not the only reason. I don't want to oversimplify. It's certainly not the only reason. But one of the big reasons why the church in Canada and a church in the U.S. is so asleep, it's sexual immorality. The statistics are, are stunning. Not just men, but women as well. How many men and women are regularly looking at pornography? That's just one thing out of many we could look at. Not to mention adultery and divorce. Rife Christians. 
Absolutely rife. I saw one, a couple of different statistics, anywhere from 37% to 50%, depending on which statistic you look at, of pastors in North America right now are regularly looking at porn. And we wonder why there's no power of God in our churches. We fill up these leadership conferences and teach pastors how to lead better, and then nothing happens. Why? Sexual immorality. Send in the Moabite women. I don't have to curse them from the outside. I can get them from the inside. And they'll be open up to all kinds of deception and selfishness and other kinds of sins. Of course they won't want to pray anymore because they'll be so covered in this filth. And so Jesus says the church of Pergamum, cleanse the impurity and the immorality and the compromise from within you or I will come and I will cleanse it out myself, but it would be better if you did it yourself. And so if you want to be powerful in God, one of the first things we're going to have to do, if we're going to see the church renewed, we need a mighty, again, this is not, this is not condemnation. This is, remember Jesus' response. If you're indifferent to the sin, he's wrathful towards you. If you're broken, if you would like nothing more than to be pure and you're willing to do whatever it takes and to walk with him, he is not mad at you for your sexual impurity. He wants to help you with it. But if we're going to have any renewal in the church, any move of God in this country, one of the things that's going to be needed is a mighty river of repentance and purity. And if you're going to see God move in your family, why isn't God moving in my marriage? Why isn't God moving in my family? If there is sexual immorality in your life, there's not going to be a power of God in your life until there is this river of repentance and purity in your life. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Is that not a powerful line? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Paul said, let there not be even a hint of sexual immorality. You know, this isn't about condemnation. This is about, it's not good. I am refusing to accept as normal or reasonable as okay in my life to have any kind of sexual impurity in my life. And if you have a repentant heart, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. As we as a church, as this, and we've already been doing this at Seltham more and more, many of you. And that's what encounters all about and all that sort of stuff. But as we begin to deal with impurity on a mass scale here in this church, we are actually, these are true. These actually are true. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. When we see repentance and holiness and purity come into our lives, we are actually going to see God here at this church. More and more and more and more. And you're going to see him in your life. More and more and more and more. That should give you hope. That should give you hope. So here's my challenge for the week. I always have a weekly challenge. And I do that. It might be dorky, and I don't care, because I am just dorky. It's part of my identity of who I am. Well, I'll tell you why I do the weekly challenge. You know what? I just don't care. Pre just preaching a message? Oh, yay. Heard another message. I can't remember the one last week. Can't remember the one two weeks ago. Uh, what did that do? You know what? Messages. What's the point of a message? It's supposed to be food that goes into us and changes something. If we don't do anything about this stuff, then all this is is entertainment, and it's meaningless long term. So here's my challenge. If you're here today and you're feeling shame for some sin from your past, Read and meditate on Psalm 51 a couple times this week. And then I want you to call up Connie. She's the one who sets up. She's, we have tons of staff people, Stefan and 
and different people who do you know, personal ministry, lots of different, Terry and Jen, and, and, and we have tons of people here and volunteer teams that do personal ministry. You don't have to live with shame anymore. If you have a repenting heart, Jesus is reaching out to you and he said, you're not dirty. You are not dirty. You're not dirty. You're not shameful. I don't hate you. I'm not against you. You have a repenting heart. You're w- willing to deal. Jesus says, I'm with you, son. I'm with you, daughter. I'm going to help you. I love you. I forgive you. No condemnation for you. You can do something about that this week. Purity. Is there any sexual impurity in your life? If there is, it's time to deal. Don't be the keep it hidden sinner. Don't be Ananias and Sapphira. Don't be the indifferent or rebellious sinner. It's time to deal. Link Wallace runs a whole bunch of groups. He's real passionate about this. He runs a whole bunch of, uh, for men, men's groups here in the church that are focused on purity. They're having a tremendous amount of success. You can call him or email him this week. Okay, you can call Stefan. You'll probably end up with Connie because he's very busy with meeting with people, but we have a whole team around Stefan, four wins there. They will help you. We will help you. It's time to deal. Purity. It's time for purity. You get purity rolling by the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. You're going to see God do huge things in your family, in your marriage. We're going to start to see him do a huge work in this church. And lastly, Friday night prayer is this Friday. It's once a month. And this week at the beginning, you won't be asked to publicly repent anything. It's not like an encounter. But the whole first part of the prayer meeting is working through. I just, I just saw the outline on the, on the, in the prayer room. It's all about working through personal repentance, praying for breakthrough in your life. It's time to deal. We're not just listening to messages for entertainment. Jesus actually wants to work in your life. And if we do not deal, he says, I will come, I'll war against you, I'll throw my mouth. If we do, he loves us. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you that for those who have a repenting heart here today, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no shame, there's no guilt. But Lord Jesus, if we have a repenting heart, if we have a repenting heart and are willing to deal and do whatever it takes, Lord Jesus, I pray for a mighty river, a river of purity and repentance and holiness to sweep through this church, young and old. And as we see that, Lord, as we stand in purity, blessed are the pure in heart, for we will see you. Thank you for how you're going to answer that prayer. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.